Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. This is our interim podcast in between the normal one, which we bring out every two weeks, where we're interviewing some interesting person from around the world. A week ago, we interviewed Scott Ree. It's been an incredibly popular. A load of people have downloaded that, and for, for good reason. Uh, we have a whole array of topics to cover today, because we haven't brought you a news podcast for actually quite some time. Uh, everything from sterilization of deer to fish farms through GWCT and heather burning and a conflict with the RSPB, um, ivory trade, rhino horn trade, yeah, a whole ton of things, tree planting in the UK. Um, so we're going to be covering all of those and talking about them in some detail, as well as bringing you a couple of funny stories. Yeah, funny, interesting. And I think that's probably a good place to start. Okay, let's funny start. story. Okay, let's let's start with a, a funny story, uh, which is actually quite recent. The small German town of Limburg has stopped playing its children's nursery rhyme because of a complaint by a local vegan, uh, well, a vegan animal rights activist, and the nursery rhyme was chimed on their clock, their local town clock, I'm assuming on the hour or something like that, uh, and it offended this person because it features a fox who steals a goose and is then shot by the upset farmer. It's a standard nursery rhyme <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. Um, but I mean, then again, uh, German German nursery rhymes and German uh, children's stories are quite terrifying. <laughs> All right, on, Hansel on, and Gretel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but it, the 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 mayor of uh, Limburg insists that it's not an ide- ideological motive behind the ban. It's just a temporary thing, and it's uh, for the woman because she works close to the ha- town hall and listening to the clock every day um, has annoyed her. Well, I don't know how it can be temporary unless she moves, moves jobs. I don't know. But Pandering. Yeah, well, there we go. Um, on uh, a slightly more serious note, uh, something that just came out yesterday, in fact there's been a couple of articles in the newspapers the last, last few days, which is the Scottish Government's plan to increase the basically the, the, the amount of ground in Scotland that we give over to tree planting. Uh, currently we have about 17% coverage, they want to increase this to 25% coverage by 2050 uh, in the slightly shorter term, <clears throat> um, 2022 uh, we're looking at an increase in tree planting of 10,000 hectares. This is part of their climate plan, but in particular what they're, they're wanting to do is they're actually wanting to increase the, the planting in upland areas. Um, this has come under a, a lot of criticism. It's quite a good example, actually, this of where some groups that might not normally see eye to eye are, have come together in, uh, under a common cause. So Mountaineering Scotland are joining the uh, in criticism from... Uh, field sports organizations basically to say just be care- very careful what you're doing here because what is your what is your motive and how are you going to change the landscape if you have mass planting across our upland areas you know Scotland is incredibly well known for these really big wide open vistas that is what we have and it's a landscape that is stunning beautiful and is held up the world over and i think it's a it's a large reason why people come here as well because if you want large forested areas to go and visit you go to europe. then you'd go to europe you go to sweden you go to norway mm-hmm. you could go to canada all these other places around the world that has large forested areas so the, part of their argument is indeed that 
Europe has a much higher percentage of their ground given over to forests. Maybe we should be a bit more like that. But yeah, but they're bigger than us. <laughs> well, I mean, it was as a percentage. Term. Yeah, as a percentage. Um, but equally, we have a very rare habitat in, in our upland moors, mm -hmm. which other countries don't, don't have. have. So we should really be protecting that. Uh, and that this is the, the argument that's come here. Do we really want to be... Um, you know, planting large areas of our uplands and trees. There are probably better places to do it. And from the reading that I did and kind of reading in between the lines and speaking to a couple of people, it does seem that the organizations and, and companies involved in planting trees don't really want to be planting there anyway, although the Scottish government seem to be, wanting, be encouraging uh, planting in the upland areas. Uh, and of course, the reason being that trees don't grow very well there. There's poor minerals, the soil's very shallow, it's windy as hell, and it's quite difficult to harvest up in, in the uplands by compared to, to low ground. So I'm not quite sure what's going to hap uh, happen there. It seems to be it'll be it seems to me one of these things that is talked about and is going to happen because a small group of people in government have decided that's what we need to do to help tick a few boxes in our climate plan. But um, we, we know that the the Scottish government is more than happy to pour millions of pounds into something that could potentially fail well i mean and this is my own personal opinion here i've always found it quite disturbing that uh, and it's not just the scottish government but the governments around the world have put so much money into wind resource when as a resource by itself without the government incentives most of them would have never even been put up because they weren't viable without the government incentives um there is a, a paper by uh, a Dr. Fenton uh, called A Future for Moorland Scotland. And he basically, it's a, it's a long document, but the long and short of that was that he raises the concerns that little bit by little bit through a whole manner of things from wind farms, he mentions that, to dams, and now to increase tree planting in the uplands, we're slowly going to lose the, our landscape and, and habitat that's there and certainly change it. And is this something that we want to be doing? We're already, st you can already see that. If you go to Loch Ness, it's basically a ring of steel around it. It yeah, used to, you know, you could stand on nearly any mountain 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and you'd almost have an uninterrupted view across Loch Ness and potentially to Ben Nevis. But now you'll have uh, probably wind about turbine. 10 wind turbine farms in your way before you can see those beautiful mountains. Well, we were talking about this uh, the other day with regard to filming in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, an increasingly important industry for the Scottish economy, and uh, you know, for a very good reason. In fact, we were out um, in the Glenet of Glencoe direction doing some stuff for a, a big film that's coming out this year, and we were there. I mean, one reason, apart from just obviously the topography and the landscape, but it's a, there for most of the place around there. It's an uninterrupted yeah. view. There are no wind turbines to be seen, and there's not a lot of. Um, not a lot of Scotland that you can't say that you can say that about no, anymore. Barely any power lines, yeah. barely any um, wind turbines, and if if we're talking about the forests, if they had planted a forest where we were, we wouldn't have been able to use use it at all because there was a forest down below, mm. and uh, they they draw your eye because of the straight lines of the unnatural look of the forests. And uh, if they were planting them further up the hills and stuff like that, we wouldn't be able to use that ground anymore. Yeah. So I, I think more than anything, this thing, it's just a, a cautionary note. Plant trees, yeah, great. Do it in the right places. I like for trees. The, for the, I love trees <laughs> for the right reasons, but don't Before just... Before people start thinking we hate <laughs> trees, I genuinely do but, like trees. But 
it, it's these sort of forced government plans that concern me. It's forced government plans on people that will probably, I'm not saying definitely, have either never been there or never used the land and will never live there. Yeah, quite possibly, <laughs> yeah. It's probably been decided yeah. by... Uh, and from what I can read from the other exports, experts who know a lot more about uh, than we do, there doesn't actually seem to be a hell of a lot of support for this plan. Yeah. Um, hopefully that, that advice is heeded. Um, what are we moving on to next? Whatever you think. You well, got I've, another fun? I've got, it's not really funny. Uh, we've got Andy Murray. Uh, oh. It's not really about him. It was more to do with the comments on a post he put up. Uh, he shared a post uh, saying, on average, the African elephant is killed every 25 minutes by poachers. Uh, WWF UK are calling for a ban on the legal elephant ivory trade within the UK um, and how they can help. Now, the comments below were quite disturbing, really, because this this post by Andy plainly said, poachers, poachers are the problems here, but a vast majority of these po- uh, comments by members of the public uh, were basically blaming hunting, and they were saying, oh, it's disgusting that people can go over there and hunt these elephants, and they were blaming big game hunting for the demise of the elephants, which isn't really true. Well, it's not true at all. Yeah, so uh, uh, people, one, aren't reading the post because actually it's just, it does say poachers in the post. Uh, secondly, I don't, people just need it's to just educate themselves. It's just a prejudice, themselves. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Because, I mean, we all, I, I would hope that we all know that one, rhinos and elephants are having a really hard time in Africa because of poaching. Mm. And that is the reason. It's not because of legal hunting, because that's all regulated. It is because of illegal poaching of game across the entire continent. And I think this, uh, what you're talking about, Daryl, was in conjunction with uh, the debate that was in uh, in the House of Commons on the 6th of February, which was, uh, they were basically talking about um, potentially cro- closing the domestic trade of ivory in the UK. So there's a closure on international trade, but not on, on domestic trade. Uh, in a number of countries around the world, there was 30 MPs in attendance. It was, I don't know if it was right after or like the day after the Brexit vote. So maybe that was the reason why <laughs> you would think there'd be a few more MPs in attendance for something like this. Um, it seems from the uh, transcripts that I read that the general feeling across everybody who was there to debate was that they should close the domestic trade for ivory. Um, certainly China uh, this year, 2017, is going to be closing their domestic market for ivory. So they could currently trade ivory within the country. All of that ivory that could be traded um, was legal ivory. A lot of it came from uh, the legal sales back in the... Um, early 2000s, I think it was, uh, from a number of countries where they got permission to sell stockpiles that they had. Um, what's interesting here is whether this is going to make a difference or, actually more importantly, whether it's going to make it worse. Uh, we talked about this at some length with Ivan Carter, who is certainly a man who you should listen to with regard to this thing, uh, this kind it, of it's, thing. It's someone I always, whenever I see comments online uh, talking about Africa in particular, uh, because that's kind of his specialty, and talking about poaching, big game hunting, so on. That's the, a podcast that I always send someone to, and I, you know, because you can argue with someone till you're blue in the face online, and they won't want to change their mind, and I just say to them, listen to this, and then come back to me, mm-hmm. and then tell me your opinion, and 
Uh, well, I like to think that people's opinions have changed. Often I don't get a response back after they've listened to it. <laughs> no, if so. you haven't listened to that podcast yeah. live in Carter, go find it in our historical podcast and listen to it because I guarantee you it'll change your perception of of Africa, probably, yeah. of hunting in Africa and the, the balance of, of uh, poaching and hunting and basically how we can protect the wildlife that we've got left. Uh, I mean, closing down the domestic uh, trade... I think there are a few things that haven't been maybe necessarily thought about, and as with is often the case with such things that are debated, people um, make decisions based on emotion rather than maybe what makes sense if you were to strip the emotion out. Right now, there is no trade in in rhino horn, and yet rhinos are being poached at the fastest rate they've they've ever been poached in the history of mankind. I would have thought. And there's no trade in it. So what is completely banning the domestic trade of elephant that are already dead because it's old ivory yeah. that we're talking about? How is that going to help? Now, I know, uh, Daryl, you were talking about, um, uh, we, well, we were talking about earlier the documentary, the ivory game. Ivory game, yeah, on Netflix. Um, and they were explaining how the legal trade of, of ivory in China was being used to basically mask illegal imports. So I suppose there is an argument for it for it in it's that a respect. Fa- fascinating show, and if you want to know how things work in China, particularly, watch that, and then you understand how how this the ivory works over there. And you know, they go into shops and they're talking about buying ivory, and these are shops that are meant to only have a very small quota of ivory and, the, and they're speaking to the shop owner and like, so you know how much these are all hidden cameras how much ivory do you have and he's like i've got six tons in a shed mm. and he's only meant to have half a ton so it just it just shows you what how bad it is that over there and how they are hiding the il- illegal ivory amongst their the legal the ivory. legal ivory yeah uh, so I don't really know what the solution to that is, but I don't believe that it's burning big stockpiles of, of ivory, of elephants that's already dead. I think that, that we could use that resource and the potential money gained from that in a far, far better way. And it hasn't worked for rhino horn, so why do they think it's going to work for ivory? The, the rhino situation's got worse since they completely banned it. Yeah. Uh, not better. But there's an interesting article by a guy called Brendan Moyle, uh, and he was he did some of the research that was part of the early um, uh, closures of trade of ivory. And the long and short of the article was that he didn't think it was going to make much difference because we have a massive problem with uh, illegal ivory right now, and that is with the legal there's not actually that many legal places in in china i think it was something like 137 legal shops that are allowed to to carve and make uh various different pretty things for your house don't get me wrong some of them are absolutely uh, phenomenal and they take like 30 years it's to make crazy um but he didn't think it was going to make any difference and i would be inclined to agree with him i think it'll just go completely underground and i can't see it going to alleviate it at all i think we need to have another think about it and we know from from rhinos and from other game around the world that if you don't have a vested interest in those animals, especially in a, uh, in a continent as corrupt as Africa, that that game will not survive. If the local people and people in general can't live off it, yeah, don't can't put a value on it in a legal sense, then they will just exploit it. 
And of course, there's loads of other human conflicts going on there. In fact, we'll, we'll be touching on that, um, some some of the animal conflicts in, in Kenya, um, just in a, in a short bit. Uh, but yeah, that's going on right now. Uh, I'm not quite sure what's going to be the end result in the UK, but I would guess just reading by the uh, response in that debate that it is probably something that we're going to see, uh, yeah. the, a, a ban of trade in the UK for ivory. To watch, to be to be watched. That's Yeah, yeah, keep an eye on it. Um, I was going to bring up something which I hadn't even written down, but I just remembered because someone that listened to the show messaged us about it, us, and I have actually watched it, which is yeah. uh, brain. Uh, what's it called? Brainwashing Stacy, uh, living with big game hunters. Um, I did watch the show. Okay. And from my understanding, she goes. I've only watched this one episode of her series, and she goes two and experiences then. different uh, things. I think what was the other one was abortion, the one before. Uh, yeah, anti-abortion camp. That was the one before. Now, if you haven't seen the show, uh, she goes to South Africa, goes to a game reserve, and the whole idea is she's trying to understand how trophy hunting works. The The guy that owns the the place that they go and hunt on, he does actually do a pretty good job of trying to explain uh, what's going on. The problem with the show is the the clients, and I'm not sure if this is deliberate um, at all, but the clients were, sorry to say, we do have a lot of American listeners for our podcast, but were stereotypical American hunters, and they were just the wrong people, absolutely a thousand percent the wrong people to have the wrong kind of ethics and wrong well, they were talking the right ethics, but it was you know there's talking and then there's actually doing if you get me mm. I mean they were driving on the tracks, stopping in the pickup, shooting the animal from the pickup truck, yeah, and then walking a hundred meters and picking up the animal uh, and this is the wrong absolutely the wrong thing that should have been anyone who is a real hunter would not be interested in doing that unless you were culling for population yeah. if you're doing it for the great enjoyment of, of pursuit and hunting no one's doing that uh, also another thing that was shown on two occasions two of the animals were hit and never found never found uh, were they bothered the people who had shot uh, one was a little kid with a bow sitting around a water hole hit it in its ass. I'm not sure if they actually... F- no, they didn't think they found that one. He was crying. So, yeah, I mean, they were bothered about it. Uh, but I just... They were the wrong people. They were filming a, a nine-year-old boy hunting with a yeah, bow. Who probably shouldn't have been. Yeah. He probably wasn't skilled enough. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it was a good one. And, and the problem with it is... Uh, credit to the the girl, Stacy, is I, I do get the sense that she was trying to understand, but... Uh, I think, I think if she was with different people, she she would have it would have clicked for her. And I think her biggest problem is actually with the people, hmm. not not, the, not doing, the activity. Yeah, not the really the doing uh, of it. And she, you know, she did actually go and try go hunting herself. I think she was trying to hunt guinea fowl, hmm. but she didn't manage to do it. Actually, a very hard bird to go and shoot with a yeah, rifle. It is <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting. one. I haven't I haven't actually seen the show, but. You know, we. I hope it's clear to the people who have been listening to us for a while that we don't think that everybody who th- who is a hunter who picks up a rifle or a bow or a fishing rod and, and hunts in whatever form that might be is a good guy or have good <laughs> ethics because it's simply not the case. No, it's not the case, which actually goes on to my next story quite well. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, but we want to encourage people to do things the right way. And if things are done the right way with the right ethics and the right management, 
it is all for the greater good. But of course, there are going to be people out there who don't ruin everything yeah. for everyone. It take, just takes one idiot to bring us down, which goes straight into our next Go story. So, an Illinois, I think it's Illinois. Illinois. It? Yeah, Illinois uh, deer hunter takes heat after posting a bizarre prank on Twitter. Oh yes. Now he shot uh, shot the deer and he shaved in the side of it. Send nudes. Uh, not the cleverest thing to do. I don't even understand what would possess somebody to do that. I d- <laughs> I've never ever shot an animal and thought, I know what I'll do. I'm going to shave it. And uh, What was his response? Did you see any response? I did. I, you, you know what? He, was, he annoyed me that much. I didn't want to look into it that much. Idiot. Yeah, complete yeah. idiot. I saw the pictures though. So I saw the pictures uh, yeah. actually. Uh, so it did actually happen. Uh, but yeah, idiot. And it's people like that that destroy all of the hard work and any argument that you have about caring for the animal and mm. being ethical you know th- it's a picture like that that they p- people can turn around to go well explain that yeah. but again that's uh deal with each thing yeah. with your head not with emotion mm. what does that well even to someone who's a hunter i'm, dis- I'm disgusted <laughs> by that and with my head i'm disgusted by that and emotionally but if you're looking at it from outside and you're somebody who maybe doesn't like it in any case, you sh- I hope that you are able to look at that and think, well, that is just that is an individual person who I object to what they're doing, not necessarily the activities as a whole. Um, just before, just because we were talking about Africa and because uh, these, I think these are my last two points on Africa, so I'll just deal with them now. Um, <clears throat> it came out just a couple of days ago that uh, the South African government are in the process of putting, well, they've already put together a draft a consultation for the regulations of domestic trade of rhino horn. So I think that's a massive move forward. Again, we talked about this on Ivan Carter's podcast, and it was something that he supported. It's something that John Hume supports. He's the largest private owner of um, rhinos in the world. I have, was lucky enough to spend a bit of time on his farm. At that point, there was around a 1,000 rhinos. I think that there's a few more now. And he has been calling this for a long time because, as we said 10, 15 minutes ago, the, currently what is happening with rhinos in Africa does not work. It, it, it's very, very clear that's not working because we're losing rhino every single day. And I got um, a few statistics here. This was actually a post by John Hume's wife um, who puts up some fantastic stuff on Facebook. Um, all very, very informative. Um and she was she was saying that if I can find the number currently, um, six and a half thousand rhinos are protected by private rhino own, owners in South Africa, and they are doing this for zero return. Yeah, they right can't make now, any money. It's from costing it. them a load of money. You can't hunt them anymore. Uh, they were bringing in money by hunting really old animals, and he came. Uh, John Hume himself came under massive criticism and has done for many years because that was part of his model for looking after these rhino. And you know what? It's worked. He has managed to protect more rhino than any other individual person on the planet. And he used to do that um, as part of a hunting model, but he can't do that anymore because it's um, that's been shut down. Um, in, since 2009, private rhino owners have spent, get this figure around your head, $115 million on security costs. $115 million. Yeah. How many... How many animal rights organizations have spent that much money on rhino? I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I would put my, I'll put my head on the line. I don't think it'll be as much as those no, private I don't owners. Think so. 
I Absolutely not. Peter more interested in uh, Warhammer figures. And, uh, <laughs> Actually, I didn't have that written down. But <laughs> we, uh, well, we've already discussed the Warhammer figures, just, I think. Did we discuss that at the start of another podcast? I think we yeah, did. Yeah. yeah, we did. You're right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a huge amount of money. And as she said here, as we're just repeating what I've just said, is that for zero incentive, because there is now no incentive to own a rhino, apart from out of the goodness of your heart, because you can't make any money out of it whatsoever. Um Hopefully, if they can open up the trade of rhino horn, there will be more incentive for farmers to have more rhino and trade the rhino horn yeah. and hopefully save them, provide more money for protection. Mm-hmm. So should we uh, go on to... Oh, I've just got one last thing, oh, one on, one last thing on Africa. Uh, and this, again, this was just the other day. Uh, someone took a picture on, well, on safari in um, Kenya of a zebra that had a spear sort of it came in just to the one side of its spine mm, I saw through that. the back strap and like out over the top of its was it Maasai land was it well it was it was yeah it was uh, i think no one has admitted to it funny enough um but it was the Maasai that they assume did it because it was one of their spears uh and the, the conflict is grazing rights so this is another example where especially in kenya which has managed to lose 70 percent of all of the game in that country since they banned hunting where the animals don't have value they'll simply go because of this human conflict now for the maasai they are um they're they're big herders and cattle have massive value to them cattle have more value than the game Mm. so what loses out the game loses out it's as simple as that if they had a situation like they have in namibia where the local um, populations can gain something from the hunting of the game that's there there'd be far less agriculture Far more game, and everybody wins. Yep. Um, right. Well, Onto I'm going to something a little bit funny again. Uh, a woman has been denied her second application for a Swiss passport after local residents took offence to her rejection of traditions, and she had been campaigning in this village to stop putting uh, the bells that you get, the big bells. You don't, you really see it in the UK. But you see it around uh, cows and stuff. Um, but you see it around their neck, you know, oh, the yeah, cowbells, yeah, yeah. um, and on pigs as well. And she, she thinks this was cruel. She thought this was cruel, and um, she does say that she was a, a vegan as well. I don't know if you want to hold that against her or not. Uh, but in, I didn't know this, in uh, Switzerland, uh, when you apply for a passport for that country, she's from the Netherlands originally, this woman, but moved there when she was eight. When you apply for a passport, not only do the local authority need to approve it, but the people in the town that you're living in also have to approve really? it. So the local authorities did actually grant her a passport, uh, but it was rejected when 144 out of the 206 residents voted against her. Because they wanted to keep their cowbells. Well, well, they didn't like that they she didn't was, like that campaigning, she was against campaigning against basically the, the town. So and she does, uh, she obviously doesn't understand the reason why they have cowbells on them. <laughs> th- yeah. It's not for ornamental purposes. <laughs> uh, she was saying that it was hurting their ears. So <laughs> Really? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, it says the, the sound of a cowbell makes 100 decibels um, compared to a pneumatic drill. Okay. So... That's why she was coming. So the local people the spoke local, up. The local people said, "Go away. We don't want you to have a passport." But so, I'm not sure how that actually affects because they're both EU countries. Switzerland, EU country. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I think they have a different movement of uh, different movement for migration. Mm, yeah, it's true. Um, she probably still lives there, but just under not not the passport. Not the passport. Yeah. 
from that to the sterilization of deer. Um, now, this is something which uh, you see talked about from time to time in, well, in quite a lot of countries. I think it's been talked about, but not seriously in the UK. <clears throat> um, it's been talked about in Australia with uh, some of the issues they've got there. Normally, you see talking about the sterilization of game for population control coming from uh, animal rights organizations because they don't like the idea of killing anything. Um, <clears throat> and there was a program in Michigan uh, it was a trial program, and they sterilized 54 female deer. I actually didn't read what type of deer it was, but uh, I think it probably would have been whitetail. Um, so 54 deer, and the reason why the story came to light was that one deer was found, just it didn't seem to have any um, inhibitions about humans. It was wandering close to the roads and walking up to cars and stuff. And this it was eventually caught and it died. Or I think it had to be put down because it had had its ovaries removed and then caught an, an infection from this program and it died, was the, the long and short of it. But what I found slightly <laughs> disturbing about the whole article was that that was basically the entire focus of the article was that they were taking... Um, they weren't, their main problem with it was that the sterilization had caused this one animal to die, not the fact that it is a completely ridiculous scenario to, go and sterilize. to sterilize animals yeah. for population control. It's crazy. Now, it did say that it was a combined, um, the management in that area was combined lethal and non-lethal so obviously this was the non-lethal part of it and um, so they had to shoot 100 deer which uh, anybody who's involved in any kind of uh, deer control in scotland will know that, that is not a, a very large number of deer no. so I, I really don't understand why they think it's economically viable and socially acceptable it costs 150 quid to neuter your cat at the vet can you imagine how much it costs to, to, uh, to neuter a deer think of the stress it's a wild animal. I mean, you, a cat's one thing, and I do encourage people to uh, to neuter their cats yeah. um, if you have a domestic cat. But this is a wild animal you're talking about. Just think of the stress it, it went through to be captured and sterilized. To what end? Simply go and shoot the animals and then you could eat as it. part of a management. And then, exactly. And then you could eat it as well instead of having this animal that is now basically of absolutely no use to the population whatsoever. All it is doing is eating food. Yeah. People are crazy. I don't understand. I've never seen a good argument yet, um, especially uh, with regard to deer species because and, and that's a, a big thing over in America for the sterilization of deer species. They've, they've done it with loads of species I saw. I don't know much details, but they were talking about getting marksmen in to control the goat population around Loch Lomond, mm. I think it was. And were they talking about sterilizing? Yeah, no, it was, yeah, to, to dart them for sterilization. But it must have cost a fortune. It's just a, a complete waste of money. Use them as a resource. Yep. There are a lot of hungry people in the world. <laughs> use use the meat as a resource. You're um, up next, Tom? Yeah, I'm going to go for another another funny one, actually, uh, which uh, came up came up a few weeks ago. So, there was a cheese festival in London. Now, that sounds my kind of festival. I could eat cheese all day long. Now, there was a few things that went wrong at this festival. One, there were so many people attended the cheese festival, they actually ran out of cheese and the, the queues were really long and How stuff like that. you have a cheese festival without cheese? <laughs> Apparently, a lot of people turned up. But, to, to add insult to injury, the people that were queuing for their bits of cheese 
were getting abuse shouted at them by vegans that had stormed the event. So you're, you're waiting to get some of your Wensleydale and getting called a murderer at the same time. So it upset a few people. Uh, uh, in fact, one quote said, I'm mega cheesed off about this tonight. Oh, wow. <laughs> that had to be a red top title, surely. It, it is. Um, I'm not sure if this came from the Daily Mail. We'll, we'll talk about the Daily Mail uh, very shortly, actually. Um, and uh, media, we talk about media a lot. Um, but these are probably the same people who think that when yes. you when you shear a, a, a sheep, you yeah. it ends up all bloody. So it says, um, protesters in white masks held up signs. How loud would you scream if someone stole your baby? Um, not my mom, not my milk was another sign they were holding up. It's kind of the general stuff that they... Like to, you know, this is something we are going to uh, look into more. The dairy something, industry. Yeah, the dairy industry is something that does interest me. You see a lot of conflicting reports. Um, I think there's a lot of misinformation, but there's probably also things that the industry can probably do better. Mm. And there are parts of the industry that probably do things absolutely brilliantly. This is why we should have got Eden on. He's just spent the last four months on a dairy farm. He wasn't feeling well today. Uh, yeah, he did actually mess with me this morning. Our, so this friend, is our friend, friend Eden, he, we are going to get him on the show just to come... Well, just to join just us on the show, us, and he's yeah. just spent four months on a dairy farm. So, if anybody knows how it works, it should be him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we we're going to talk about this more because, uh, and a lot more stuff about agriculture as well, because uh, I think there are a lot of things which could do with being fleshed yeah. out and getting to the bottom of a lot of misinformation. Yeah. On the on the the end note, it says on the evening of Cheese Facebook event, people posted their anger that they didn't get to sample any dairy delights, and on their way in. They got shouted at by angry vegans, so that was the, the end of it. Um, fish farms. Uh, oh, d- oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. You're not oh, I was uh, talking about, quickly, I was going to mention the Daily Mail okay, and yeah, media before we first. move on to fish farms. Now, this is a first. So, we've talked in the past about how when you read a news article, sometimes you actually have to look a little bit further or find two or three articles to confirm Just co- it. Yeah, corroborate your... Yeah. Uh, for the first time ever, Wikipedia has now stopped the Daily Mail, uh, well, people from using the Daily Mail as sources for their articles. Now, Wikipedia, anybody can go on Wikipedia and edit it, then it's checked, um, and pages are put up with many sources from newspapers. And in the past, good journalism meant that they could basically take most articles for what they actually were, and they were relying on the good journalists mm. of actually have doing background checks and good journalism. So if you cited a newspaper, yeah. it would be accepted. It basically. would be accepted. They have now, for the first time ever, said that the Daily Mail will no, they will no longer take the Daily Mail as uh, a reference for an article due to their n- not looking at background checks. And I'm sure I had another. One I mean, if that's not here. if that's not uh, a sign of shoddy journalism, if Wiki is now not okay. accepted yeah, as a reference, poor fact checking and sensitization uh, yeah. of articles. So that tells you everything you kind of need to know. Well, yeah. there you go. So if you're a Daily Mail reader, probably read it with a pinch of salt. Everything with a pinch of salt. Uh, read everything with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Yeah. Wiki won't even accept it anymore. It's just like I said to when I went to go and talk uh, with Jules from our sponsor, the Scottish Association for Country Sports, um, to the school down in Dumfries. So the last thing I said to the kids there was, you know, read everything, immerse yourself in it, but always ask questions and never believe one source. Mm -hmm. Don't believe what I say. Don't believe what any other individual person says. Go and look at multiple places. Sometimes we can be wrong. Sometimes we can be wrong. 
Not always. <laughs> or not often. Not often. What you meant. Yeah, not often. Um, so fish farms, um, we are going to be talking a lot more about this probably in towards the end of March. We've hooked up some podcasts for this um, for good reason with regard to sea lice and some other work we've been that we've been, in it. Yeah, some, some stuff that we, we've been uh, working on, but we can't talk too much about just yet. Um, but this is was uh, an article out um, a couple of weeks back on a fish farm, well, a secret fish farm, in inverted commas, uh, apparently having the potential to, to go ahead either off Orkney or Shetland. We're talking 2 million fish, six to 7,000 tons of fish in weight. I mean, that's many, many times more than the fish farms that are in existence right now. And the reason that this came to light and the reason that we know about it is because of a Freedom of Information Act request to the Scottish government. Now, they'd actually discussed this back in 2015 through into 2016, and we are only hearing about it now, which I think is just pretty inexcusable, to be honest, because we all know, well, increasingly in the last few months, that there are some serious questions and serious effects on the, around the fish farms that we currently have. Yeah. And it is really negatively affecting a lot of our coastline. And here is something that has the potential to be many, many more times worse than anything that we currently have. And they didn't even have the courtesy to tell people. Now, the, the reason that they were able to keep it a secret is some sort of loophole that they have where they can basically pull it in from the public eye if it could stir considerable public interest, which seems utterly ridiculous to me. But anyway, <laughs> you think that, that anything in government should be openly discussed? Yeah, apart from maybe national security. Yeah. Um, so that is why we only find out about this now as a result of a freedom of information request. Um, what is interesting is that there was also talk, and I couldn't actually back this up with another source so take this with a pinch of salt is that SEPA were discussing actually scrapping the current limits they have for the amount of fish that you can have in, in a certain area yeah. and in one location um, and if that was the case then it would basically allow something like this to go ahead because currently having this amount of fish and, and actual biomass in one area would break all the rules and regulations that we currently have in place. So it wouldn't be possible to do. But it looks like there seems to be support for it from the government. Now, that is about the only place there seems to be support from it, from, from parts of the government and from obviously the companies who are, if they, they were to put this in, are going to make a shed of money. Yeah. Um, a couple of quotes here. Um, Dr. Richard Luxmore, he's a senior nature conservation advisor for the National Trust, um, in Scotland, and he basically warned that the proposed farm would emit, and this is to quote him, a truly eye-watering quantity of effluent. And he said that he was shocked to hear that SEPA were even considering a farm that they acknowledge would breach their, uh, breach their current population controls, which is what I was just saying. Um, I mean, they're obviously not the, the only people. Um, the Salmon Trout Conservation Scotland uh, was worried about the sea lice infestation, which is a, a big problem in current farms. Um, they said that uh, their primary concern would be the risk that such a huge farm would produce billions of paras uh, parasitic sea lice, which would infect and seriously compromise the survival chances of wild salmon and sea trout. Um, I'm just trying to see if there was anything else here. 
yeah, I mean, the 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 end result of that is it just doesn't look good for our marine environment. And anybody who has done any reading into uh, the problems associated with the fish farms that we currently have, especially on the West Coast, will know that there's a lot, there seems, certainly seems to be a lot, uh, a lot of things that come out of it which are bad and very few things that come out of it which are good. Yeah, I know. It's uh, So I think it's a serious, serious concern and yeah, we should have known about it. But, but once again, because it's in the ocean, people seem to care, care a little bit little less about, about it. it. If it was a panda bear, people would care. Yeah. It would be quite funny if those things were like pandas drifting on the ocean. All <laughs> fluffy. Anyway, we're going to move on to something else to do with more animals. Most of the things we talk about are. But this is, in particular, a beautiful series, Planet Earth 2, uh, hosted by Sir David Attenborough. A blockbuster series. If you have not seen it, go and watch it. The cinematography in it is absolutely phenomenal. Blow you away. It will blow you away. I think it took over 10 years to film like most of those things do. It's crazy. There's yeah. periods of time if you think about it. Yeah, it is. And the reason why this has been in the news is not for good reasons. It's because the presenter from BBC Spring... It was producer, right? No, presenter. It was presenter. Yeah, Martin oh. Hughes... Martin Hughes Games, that's his full name. According uh, to this article, anyway. According to this article. Um, he has criticised it for not showing the reality of... The, well, the reality of the wildlife and the, the, the stress that it's under due to human um, interaction. And he was basically saying that we need to be doing more shows for kids and I'm assuming I he wants more shows like Springwatch. Yeah. I think he was saying that they weren't portraying it well because some of it seems like look how well all the this rare rare wildlife is doing where and that they were filming in the same locations yeah. all the time in in fairly small areas yeah, it's, relatively it's, i mean speaking. a quote here is an impression of pristine wildlife yeah um, attenborough shows create uh, a misleading life of these animals which i guess in to one extent you can but that wasn't the purpose of the program the purpose of the program wasn't to really show i mean it does it does actually show some of the human co conflict it was to show the magnificent wildlife that we have and it's shown it in a light that no one has ever seen before and has been seen by more people than any other wildlife program has ever watched i mean spring watch will never dream to even see those numbers. Mm. It will never happen. In fact, I bet you if you combine all the the watches of all of the Spring Watch and Winter Watch all together, it probably doesn't even come close to what Planet Earth 2's viewership... And of course, it's the same organisation. It's all BBC it's all, by, it's all by the, the BBC as well. Um, it's, I, I mean, I can. it's an interesting point. I think it's probably been taken maybe slightly out of context, as often these things yeah. are. Um, but I, I actually haven't even finished watching it yet. But you said, Daryl, at the end that he did actually talk about um, yeah, well, there's, there's the human a, conflict. There's a whole episode dedicated to wildlife in towns and basically the human conflict and how wildlife has adapted in some circumstances uh, to live amongst humans, monkeys in particular, because they're quite nifty little little guys. And there was at the end of the episode it was showing how humans have kind of destroyed some habitats sea turtles being a really good example of that and sorry if you've not watched planet earth 2 yet but i'm going to give you a spoiler here because you've had enough time to watch it uh 
And if you aren't from the UK, definitely go and get the DVDs or something like that because it's well worth watching. There's a scene where the sea turtles are all hatching and what's happening is that the artificial lights from our towns are dazzling them. They always hatch when it's a full moon, I think mm. it is. And that's how they can navigate to the ocean. And because our artificial lights are actually brighter than all of the natural lights that we'd normally get in the sky, they start walking the wrong way and they start walking into the towns and into the roads. And in this episode, you actually see this happening, all of them going the wrong way up the beach. And it's basically the first time ever that the Planet Earth team has stepped in and set them back in the right course and put them back in the ocean. Uh, in the past, there's been many comments of people saying, you know, why didn't you help this this animal that was killing another animal? And it's always been a policy to just leave nature to do its thing. Uh, but they said that they intervened this time because it was man caused the problem, so man should fix it. Yeah. And they apparently every turtle that you saw in that episode was put back in the ocean. I mean, I, I think that a, a program like Planet Earth has raised awareness of the beauty of the landscape and the animals that are yeah. on it more than probably anything else that has ever come before it. And if it makes people think and realize exactly what we have and potentially what we could lose if we don't take action, then I, I think that's all for the good. And I think he's probably been a, a bit harsh, but I can, I can, I can see where the guy's coming from. Um, and it is, I think people are not so naive to know yeah. that if if they're filming some tigers, that there's not tigers everywhere. But <laughs> to be able to see them in the way, and the, the snow leopards, to be able to see yeah. snow leopards in the way that they showed them, it was incredible. And to make people have this awareness of animals that they can't see all the time, I think is brilliant. I think Hugh should sort out his uh, people closer to him in his own programs first than mm. uh, then intervene with uh, Attenborough's business possibly um is that f you finished on that yeah i'm finished on that um this is a really very serious thing back in the sea um and i think daryl's got another very similar article to this and this was about a whale that was it, well it kept on beaching itself along the norwegian coast and eventually it it died and when they autopsied it there were 30 plastic bags in its stomach um, this is on the back of uh, a year ago. There were 13 sperm, sperm whales uh, that died somewhere near Germany. And again, they found loads of plastic um, plastic and plastic bags in the stomach, along with car parts. I'm not quite sure what car parts. It didn't specify, but yeah, basically junk that we've stuck in the sea. I saw a picture the other day. I think it was on Facebook. And that, uh, there was two glasses, um, clear drinking glasses, side by side. One had a jellyfish in it, and one had a, a kind of half see-through plastic bag. And they put them side by side. And the, the caption was basically, you know, one's a jellyfish, one's a plastic bag. If you're a turtle, or I suppose it could apply to anything that would eat jellyfish, like can you tell yeah. the difference? And you look at, and you actually, you know, you do have to look quite carefully to, to see which is which. And yes, I could tell the difference, obviously. But if you imagine an animal, you know, a, a sea, some yeah, sort of sea life around. drifting around, just taking something that looks like it is a jellyfish. It's natural food, yeah. I mean, it's. Can you imagine if that's what we know about is dying? <laughs> All the stuff that we don't know about is dying because of the plastic we put in the sea. It's crazy. The amount of plastic that's in our oceans now is absolutely phenomenal. And uh, I think, like a lot of people, when. Uh, in the UK, the the bag charge came in. I think a lot of people were very 
a bit pissed off that they had to pay five so. p. But you know what? I've actually thought about it a lot more, and I use a lot less plastic bags. I, I always take my reusable. Yeah, bags. so I think it has been a very good thing. Mm. And I think they're meant to. All that money is meant to go back into charities and stuff like that. From my understanding, I don't think they're meant to pocket the five p for I themselves. I think you're right. It's a big problem and a massive consideration, and it, it quite possibly could might be one of the biggest concerns we should have actually on our planet right up there with climate change yeah or microbeads is another one which is a way to be banned in the uk uh, if you don't know what microbeads are they're the things you get in face scrubs exfoliating which i didn't know up until about two years ago were actually plastic i, I thought didn't know i either. thought they were natural bits like grits of uh, and grit. minerals and no not at all they're actually solid plastics and i i confirmed this with uh, a friend of mine who's a PhD in chemistry, and he was like, yeah, absolutely, they're all plastic and they're all going down the drain, which kind of leads nicely into my article, which is basically that we are ingesting a lot of plastic uh, due to what's happening. I've actually just completely scrolled past my article here. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're ingesting a lot of plastic from the seafood that we're eating, which goes back to what Byron was just talking about there. Uh, about these sea animals eating bags and so on, but this is more talking about microplastics, which uh, mussels and um, others any filter feeding, filter feeders yeah. eat. And you know, we all eat mussels. I I enjoy mussels, and uh, mussels uh, drink about twenty liters of water a day, and they ingest microplastics on that. So. And what's happening is these microplastics, we're now eating them, and they stay in us for a particularly long length of time. They don't mm. really know how long. And it's the toxins that are coming off these things that we don't know the long-term effects of. It's crazy. Yeah. And, of course, you, a lot of ties quite nicely into that is the other um, chemicals and mercury that's mm. floating around the sea. So the higher up the food chain of the the fish that you're eating, so tuna is quite a good example of that, the greater the chance yeah. you are of having mercury ingestion or other toxin ingestions because they're eating all the all the smaller fish um, and various planktons and stuff. So further th down this the was a study done by a university, actually one of the biggest of its kind. I'll try and find the university's name. Like I said, I, I kind of lost my position on my article here. So a person that will be eating reg uh, seafood regularly will consume roughly about 780,000 pieces of plastic a year. That's microplastics we're talking about. You can't really see them. And you'll be absorbing 4,000 of them um, into your digestive That's system. That's crazy. Yeah. That is crazy. There are more than five trillion pieces of microplastics in the world's oceans. Yeah, that's, I, that's a number that you can't even, you can't fathom. even think. Yeah, it's it's absolutely mind blowing. I was reading. I read another report um, the other day that was, and I can't remember what. I, I, for some reason, I seem to have it in my head. It was by twenty fifty, but don't quote me on that. That there will be more plastic uh, in the right, sea. Twenty fifty. Oh, yeah. oh, have you got it there? More yeah. plastic in the sea than the weight of fish. Uh, no, but this is a different one. This is saying by twenty fifteen that will increase. To four trucks every minute, some. It probably was part yeah, of the same yeah, research, but they were saying that the weight of plastic in the sea by 2050 um, cumulatively would be more than the weight of the fish in the sea. Now, that's a pretty scary thought. Yeah. And yet, we don't have a good solution to this. The, the most interesting solution I saw to plastics in the sea was by a really young guy um, a couple of years ago, and he had this. Um, he had designed this thing. It was based on uh, the shape of a manta ray. And it floated in the sea and used the currents to 
push water through it, and it basically filtered. It was, it was a giant oh. filtering machine. Basically, what you get in the swimming pools. To yeah, skim, exactly. Yeah. Skim, to skim the surface yeah. because that's actually where most of the the plastics are in the yeah. surface area. It's a good idea. You would need a lot of them. Yeah, well, he, I can't. But the thing is, they can track ocean currents, so most of the stuff ends up in, in the same places, in roughly the same places. So if you can track that, then then maybe there is hope. Well, his argument was well, the sort of pitch that he was putting was that the plastics that they actually captured they could recycle, and it would more than pay for itself. Yeah. Well, I don't see why not. There was uh, another thing. I'm sure it was in National Geographic. And there's a ocean in Russia that is just a multicolored beach. And it's blues, greens, yellows. Classics. No, no. It's um, bottles. Vodka bottles. Really? And uh, over, everybody's seen it. Over the course of time, they all wear down to pebble yeah, pebble yeah. shapes. But it's now this multicolored ocean, um, just the way that the currents are. And uh, the longshore drift and all this glass has ended up there all perfectly smooth. On I've not seen that. But I think, uh, well, I'm pretty sure glass doesn't do quite as much harm as, not sure. as plastic. I don't think so. Don't Otherwise, think we probably would have read about it. Yeah. Um, oh, just for people's inf- information, it was the University of Ghent in Belgium uh, that's doing this uh, long-term health risk uh, research. Uh, a negative uh, piece of news against uh, hunting out fairly recently from the Humane Society International. Um, the Basically, if I condense it down, they said that all the reports that the various different hunting organizations and economists have put out over the year that suggest that um, hunting in, I think they were particularly talking about big game hunting, has a positive economic impact uh, in places like Africa, are wrong because the the economic imp- impact is a lot less than what they were suggesting. Um, I can't comment on whether they are right or wrong on that because I haven't had time to really dig into their reports. But what I can tell you is that I wrote an article very recently, uh, and the Humane Society, uh, the Humane Society International. Uh, were a subject of that article along with Born Free, and it was particularly looking at the funding put into uh, the protection um, and management of lions in Africa. Um, two organizations, well, it seems obvious with Born Free, but uh, two organizations that are always giving hunting, hunting organizations and hunters a hard time for killing lions and hunting lions. And basically the long and short of that was that they were putting... And I wish, unfortunately, I left my laptop at home this morning because otherwise I'd give you the numbers and I couldn't find the article again. But a disgustingly small amount of the humongous amount of money that they get every year into the very thing that they campaign for. Uh, they were barely putting any money into lion conservation when you compared it to some of the hunting organizations uh, like the Dallas Safari Club, for for example. It made it look fairly pitiful. So uh, I'm, they have an agenda for sure, as, of course... You you can say uh, hunting organisations have, but they most definitely have an agenda. So, uh, yeah, that that article is out there. They're basically saying that they're not contributing what uh, what they have said they have in previous reports. So I'll need to look into that a little bit more. Well, talking about some more negative news, we uh, have well this, this came out when, a few weeks ago now, and it was a recording from Dr. Pat Thompson. Of from the RSPB senior upland policy officer, and he was recorded basically saying that the 
the RSPB are at war with... Uh, he used those words. Yeah, he did yeah. use those words uh, with Merlin managers. And uh, I'll read a bit more about this article. He goes on to accuse the Merlin community of standing up and taking credit for all sorts of things. This is in quotes. Uh, like blanket bog restoration and the increase of the golden eagle population, which he said, another quote, was a load of nonsense. Mm. Now, I've actually seen the Moorland uh, restoring uh, yeah, blanket, actually, blanket yes. bog. I've actually filmed it myself. Uh, funded, uh, oh, hang on. It, it was funded by the estate. Partly funded. Partly funded by the state. So I would say you can take credit for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's happening on the estates, and they're putting a lot of manpower into it. It's happening on the estates just around us, actually. Yeah, um, it was as well. And he also had a go at the GWCT, and uh, there was uh, a response from the GWCT and the director Andrew Gilruth, who was on the podcast, who was actually. on the podcast with, um, and it says with disagreement and and challenge being a normal part of scientific process, it is bizarre that anyone would seek to describe the difference of opinions as a war, phony or otherwise. Uh, it says, however, it, this is obviously how some senior RSPB uh, staff felt after the Petitions Committee inquiry into the grouse shooting. Uh, at the oral evidence session, MPs were told that the RSPB, uh, that they see Heather Burning as an environmental ill and a net negative impact. So you can see where... Yeah, got I, can, I can actually follow on from that slightly because I have uh, something else here uh, which was off the back of exactly what you were talking Just, about. Just uh, one other thing before you go. Dr. Thompson uh, couldn't comment after he made these statements because oh. he was ill. Well, yeah, just to follow on from that, um, this was um, in a presentation to the Raptor, Raptor study group by the RSPB and they basically accused the GWCT with regard to heather burning and this is I'm quoting now, uh, of distorting and discrediting science on Heather Burning. Um, but as Daryl said, they, they did respond to that, and they basically said that you know they are following the protocol of science and they've come to a different conclusion to them. It doesn't mean that they are wrong. It doesn't mean that the RSPB are wrong, but to throw statements around like that is in the scientific community is just utterly ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, I d they didn't say it was utterly ridiculous. I'm saying it's utterly ridiculous, just to be clear there. Yeah. Um, while we're on that subject... Um, also connected to the RSPB and we are going to be having someone from the RSPB on very soon so you will be pleased to hear and we are very pleased that we're going to be able to do that and have a serious discussion um, some of you may have seen that the hen harrier called Highlander uh, which disappeared in April 2016 and a load of different uh, animal rights groups but especially the RSPB were very quick to say that yes it's disappeared probably and most highly likely because of persecution um, and it the had first this, thing but most the, people jump to first thing they jump to straight after that um, disappearance uh, they pulled out of the hen area action plan and put up a ten thousand pound reward for anybody who had inf any information on the disappear uh, disappearance of the hen area well guess what that bird suddenly and miraculously reappeared he the was, other day he was on holiday he was on holiday and his telemetry had failed <laughs> funny so, that we've talked about telemetry failure before have. I mean look I'm not suggesting for one second that there is no persecution going on. We've talked about this yeah. before. Yes, I have no doubt it's going on. Those people shouldn't be doing it. Simple as that. But we need to make sure that we're not jumping to conclusions with no evidence, as clearly is the case here. You know, there is a huge amount of common ground that 
a lot of organizations don't want to agree there's common ground on and that's where we should be to start all of our discussions well i think one of the last things i've got ricky gervais he comes up every few months oh, not ricky we've not, missed him. we've not talked about him for a long time actually and as i said before it really annoys me that he has this stance on on hunting uh because i actually do find some of his comedy stuff quite good uh and the latest thing this was in December, he uh, Ricky Gervais has slammed big game hunters, called them psychopaths, uh, and this was on uh, he was being interviewed on, on a show, talk show on talk show. I'm going to cough here. <coughs> I'll turn that down a little bit for the, <laughs> the people listening at home. I've been trying to hold in the cough for the last hour. Uh, he says, describing hunters who share trophy pictures on social media. The actor um, and comedian said, "Imagine if a vet." said, I'm going to put down your cat now. Can I do it with a bow and arrow, then take a selfie for Facebook? Question mark. That's what he said. Uh, and then it says, uh, you would go, no, you're an effing psychopath. He continued, why the selfie? I don't get annoyed about a lion eating an antelope because that's what it does, but what they don't do is eat an antelope for a laugh and then take a selfie afterwards. Do you know what You know what I don't like? What? People who take selfies with their food but aren't prepared to kill it. Mm. Same difference, right? Well, it is. We've it's talked almost. About, we have talked about it we've, before. We've, but we've, it's the same we've said before that what what is the actual difference between standing with a deer? Because we've got friends that have had some abuse uh, online for killing a deer, and and saying, I, uh, "This is what I've shot. I'm going to eat the damn thing now." There is no difference to that as taking a picture of your steak. No Lots of people were doing it in for fact, Valentine's Day. In fact, a lot Day. more respect. Yeah. A lot, yeah. There were a lot of people yeah. doing it for Valentine's Day. Um, yeah. So th that's the dog that you can hear if you're hearing him. He's. I think he wants attention now. So yeah, he's playing he at my feet and chewing my fingers. So we are almost wrapped up. I'm just going to mention one last thing. And that was uh, the complete idiots um, who shot their 18-month-old baby in the head with an air gun. Um, I, I named them because they were named in the papers, Emma Horseman and Jordan Walters. Basically, the the child was crying a lot, so she thought it would be a good idea to tell her partner, I think, um, to shoot the baby in the head. And it was very, very serious. Um, yeah, it's a, a gun incident, which is why I'm mentioning it, but a perfect example of how it actually has nothing to do with with a gun because if they hadn't had an air gun in the house, they probably would have done something equally as stupid with something yeah, else. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, that's incredibly sad. So I think that is it for for today. Yeah, I think I think we've we've done a pretty good we've job of catching a, yeah, up on, catching on a up whole on array of news. You will be hearing from us in one week's time, where yep. we're going to be interviewing uh, Ulrich, as I mentioned at the start. Um, and then back to two weeks. Uh, in fact, the, the podcast after that might very well be one from Germany. It should be. It should be. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna invest more time on news and stuff from around the globe because we've been looking at who our listeners are, and we do have a large amount of listeners from Australia and United States and Canada. Yeah. So, so th thank you very much for listening. Yeah. So if you're from any of those places, and if I've missed you out, thank you for listening as well because we do have uh, <coughs> listeners all over the globe. Um, I don't think I could name all the places. Right? It would be a challenge to name all the places. It would but, be. But it it's is. a lot of countries. I mean, it's South Africa, Thailand. Uh, we've got some New Zealand. Korea. And, uh, we've got one listener in Korea, South Korea, not North. Um, though I would like it if the Supreme Leader did listen to our <laughs> show. <laughs> that would um, be fantastic. <laughs> it would be. Uh, 
But yeah, no, thank you very much for listening. And don't forget that you can check out all of our stuff that we're up to on our website, thepacebrothers.com. It's also got a shop on there. You can grab yourself a nifty Pace Brothers mug if you want to. Or, or a t-shirt. Or a t-shirt, which I am wearing now for the people sporting. that are watching on YouTube as well. Is there anything else? The uh, dog is sneezing. The dog now. is sneezing. Yeah. Um, we've already mentioned our, our sponsor in the middle of one of our news items, the Scottish Association for Country Sports. But they uh, they support and sponsor the show, mm-hmm. and uh, without the help of them and the the other the other companies and brands of the the products that we can give away, uh, like Caldwell and, and Bushnell, we probably wouldn't be able to bring you the show. So thank no. you very much. For uh, what's up for grabs right now? It's a head torch. Yes, Bushnell head torch. Yeah. So you've got one more week to enter. I'm away to put up another post on Instagram, and if you have already entered, you can enter again on this post as well. So you get double. There'll be two pictures. Up. There'll be two pictures up of the Bushnell head torch, and that will be up at some point after this show is up. Which right. is yeah. That's Thank you very much for listening. Yeah. Until next time. Bye.